Hello again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeff Kwame. I'm your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This podcast comes to you thanks to the generosity of our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan, Connecticut, which provides individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client their best chance at long-term recovery. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehab center in the state to be accredited by both CARF International and the Joint Commission, and is currently recruiting passionate and talented individuals for its Connecticut and New York locations. Every employee, regardless of position, plays a role in improving the lives of clients and their families. If you're interested in joining the Mountainside team, please visit mountainside.com forward slash careers. And on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. As we enter what we hope are the waning months of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's important to take stock not only of what we lost, but what we have gained. Under the umbrella of professional development, we have certainly lost the ability to congregate for training events and conferences in face-to-face environments and all that goes with such events. Conversely, we've gained increasing skill in making the most of existing virtual events in the professional development space, but also have expanded upon them, allowing for large-scale information sharing and increasing economies of scale. Hardly a day goes by that I'm not receiving invitations to attend, participate, develop, or teach virtual presentations, with many being at very low cost or even free for participants. For those professionals who are willing to step outside their usual pattern of professional development, the landscape abounds with virtual opportunities. Our field has long struggled with what is known as the science-to-service gap, meaning that we have had difficulty putting research into practice. The fluidity of science is certainly a barrier bridging this divide, but our guests today represent a national network of organizations that also help to span the crevasse for SUD professionals. The Addiction Technology Transfer Center Network has been providing important professional development services for individuals since 1993, which is almost, almost as long as I've been in the field. and too many professionals are not fully aware of who they are, what they do, and how they provided valuable service for these 28 years. Having myself been involved in both national and regional projects sponsored by the ATTCs, I certainly have a personal and professional interest in raising awareness and hopefully utilization of their services. Our guests today are leaders of both the national organization and the New England regional office. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Holly Hagel, co-director of the ATTC Network Coordinating Office at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and Dr. Sarah Becker, project director of the New England ATTC at Brown University in Providence, to our program. Thanks for spending a little time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Again, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's great that we can get some of this information out to uh, our listeners. And I'd like to start out kind of with the big picture for those folks who who aren't really aware of, of, of what the ATCs do. Can we talk about the genesis and history of the ATTC network? Absolutely. Uh, This is Holly from the ATTC Network Coordinating Office, and uh, we we are nearly 30 years old. Uh, As you mentioned, we're 28 years old of continuous funding 
from the federal government, uh, the Division of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which is part of Health and Human Services uh, at the federal government level. And in 1993, they determined that uh, they should support the addiction treatment workforce, and they developed about six addiction training centers, they were called at the time. They were around the country, not in any regional configuration at that time, but uh, many of the regional centers that we now have, which uh, we will put in a link to the website so you can see all of the regions that line up to the Health and Human Services District, there's 10 of them, they cover every state in U.S. territory. So every state and U.S. territory has a designated ATTC team. And we are, as you mentioned, lucky to be in the New England region. And we're gonna hear more about their regional center. That was an outstanding overview from my friend, Holly. Hi, this is Sarah. I'm uh, representing the New England Addiction Technology Transfer Center, which I have the pleasure to direct. I would just add for those listeners from New England that we were one of the first addiction training centers based at Brown University. We are about to celebrate our 28th birthday. And we are currently situated within the Brown University School of Public Health, but the School of Public Health is younger than we are. Uh, the School of Public Health was established in 2014. So we've actually been around much longer than the School of Public Health, and we are delighted to now be a key a service situated at Brown University. Thank you. I, I appreciate the kind of the look from the big picture of national to, to our folks here in New England to kind of understand you know, what's happening here and your history as well. Um, when we look at the big picture again, what are some of the services that are provided nationally? So from a national perspective, I would say our most robust service are the online platform services that we have. We have many, many online courses that cross actually the continuum of care from prevention, early intervention, treatment, and recovery, and other, you know, subject matters. Like we have specific courses that focus on the business side of our system, specific uh, courses that um, address clinical supervision and, and courses that address specific evidence-based interventions like motivational interviewing or contingency management. So I would say for listeners, the largest uh, program that we have nationally is our online learning platform. Additionally, we have literally hundreds of events that run across the country through the network, um, webinars, uh, research briefs, research manuals, training manuals, um, also uh, like motivational uh, program brochures and um, other products that you might want to utilize in your programs. Um, they run the gamut across any of the topics that you might think about in our field, like stimulants or opioids, alcohol, tobacco, vaping. So um, visiting our website is the best way to get a sense of the large, you know, all the products that we have throughout the network, and then the national events that we do run. Over the last year, I will um, want to highlight a couple events that we have, and then um, I'll hand it over to Sarah to talk about regional. Um, obviously, we are just now continuingly being in the epidemic, have gone to this transition to virtual. And so over the last year, um, we had to help ramp up the field very quickly to address um, the pivot to telehealth services. So that's one of the resources that I wanted to highlight that we have a national telehealth series um, that was very well received and a lot of products, including a podcast series and um, handouts that summarize different topics about how to deliver services through telehealth. And then the other 
uh, series that I'll highlight are ser national series we did on the social determinants of health in relation to substance use prevention, early intervention, and treatment. That was a very large national listening session. Then we had a strategic planning session. And then we uh, derived some uh, themes and resources that we presented. So those are two very large topical areas that um, we have addressed nationally that I think your listeners might be interested in. Yeah, from the regional perspective, I think Holly's really highlighted how the National Coordinating Office provides national services that your listeners could easily access on their own, like courses and um, kind of easy to digest uh, information bites. What I think people don't see is that the National Coordinating Office provides a ton of services to the regional centers so that we operate as a really tightly coordinated network. And I think the benefit of the ATTC network, the way we're structured is that if you reach out to your regional TTC, you get really deep, meaningful connections and the ability to work with a center that is situated within your region that can respond to your regional needs. And yet you're able to tap into this national expertise and national subject matter expert pool. And often when there are issues that transcend regions like the stimulant epidemic that we're seeing now, the National Coordinating Office will lead the development of curricula that then the regional TTCs can go out and provide regionally to meet uh, the local needs. So it's a really lovely balance, I think, of having that, again, national depth and breadth um, with regional partnerships. And for me, I can see that being really important for, for many reasons. One is we tend to, as a field, when it comes to training, we focus on the crisis du jour, so to speak. If there's something that's big going on, all of our focus tends to go to that, and we often forget about the other things. And Holly, what you just described, and, and Sarah, some of the things that you do, don't just single on one. Certainly, there's this is an area of focus or intensity, but you never forget that this is not a simple, you know, one thing at a time problem. And, the, and bringing up and talking about the social determinants of health helps everybody at every level of the system, prevention, treatment, recovery. And, and it's, I'm glad that we're having those discussions because it's really, really, really important. And Sarah, I, I really get what you're saying about how everything is, uh, it may be done regionally, but with national uh, support, because most of the stuff that I've done has been through, I, in 2009, I did uh, competency-based clinical supervision. I was involved in that. And then it went to the, and I don't remember, I think that was Northwest ATTC. And then it was the NVAR ATTC for, um, uh, there were some uh, ethics in the digital age, and we led into uh, technology-based supervision, which although it was designed for really the more rural areas, we were able to look and talk to some agencies and say, you've got 12 sites in three cities locally. It's easier to get your people together than going from site to site. So it's really a lot of exciting stuff that really is cutting edge and, and uh, I know that when Catherine Power was our regional person in New England, uh, I had conversations with her. She would always refer me, go to the ATTC for that. Go to the ATTC for that. Absolutely. You mentioned the kind of the the, the platform, the e-learning, which is certainly a way things are going. As I mentioned earlier, it's a great economy of scale. You get more bang for your buck out of that. Um, and I think it appeals to younger people in the field, which is something that we really need to do. We need to attract younger people. We've got to kind of turn over some of the leadership stuff. Is The Healthy Knowledge Platform, um, I like it not just because of the courses, 
But what's really important to me is that it's asynchronous. It's not I have to be here at 2 o'clock on Tuesday every week for a class. It's really self-paced learning uh, and a great environment for individuals to learn at their own speed and go back and double-check things to, to get an understanding of it. Um, was it really a conscious decision to offer uh, on-demand courses uh, in this way? Absolutely. And I could date myself a little bit. I have a unique distinction in the network as I was a regional director for a number of years, and now I'm at the National Coordinating Office. So I can tell you when I started in 2003 in the ATTCs, we literally had a correspondence course that was attached to our newsletter. So we, it was a print newsletter. We had thousands of people in our regional office. We would have a topical newsletter and inside the middle you know, section of it, we had a 10 page um, quiz, 10 question quiz. It was NADAC approved. People would take the test, put their check in for the CEUs and mail it into our office. And the network coordinating office, like 2003, you know, online courses were not as prominent as they are today. And so they really stepped in and used, I think the first platform that they used was Blackboard through the University of Missouri here. Um, and they saw this, that we were working remotely with our stakeholders and there was a need for this. And they very early on, I say for sure, the leadership here at the NCO have always been early adopters, um, created opportunities for the regional offices to work online. Blackboard was our first. I know Blackboard is still used by many. We now use a Moodle-based system, but um, it really serviced the need. And so it did eliminate our regional topical newsletters, and we put our resources to this healthy knowledge, you know, learning platform because it was an economy of scale. You know, we could get the, re, you know, topicals, but it could be used nationally. And then we didn't have to put our resources into developing every, you know, a course for every subject matter, but other regional centers would you know, perhaps put invest in one topic and we would, you know, use our resources to invest in a different topic, but we could all share that through our learning management system. So I dated myself a little bit and told you about a, li a literal correspondence course that we, that we ran and how um, the network coordinating office was able to, you know, fit that need for the regional center, but also create this whole, I, we call it a small city because there's like 100,000 users on it. You know, a small city of, of users who are learning any time, day or night, as you said. Um, and now we also have an international audience, which I know Sarah is a part of that network as well. If, you know, with myself living in the Hartford, Connecticut area, what I like is that if I'm involved in, in taking a course, I'm getting the same information as somebody on the other side of the country that's science-based, that we're not, that is, the language is the same. So we're not using... Uh, colloquialism or you know, the little idiosyncrasies of the area. So the, the information is broader based. And when I tell individuals in my network who are getting ready to take a certification exam, I, I have to let them know to don't think about how what we call something here. Don't think about, look at the big picture and, and be really comfortable with what the, I guess the approved language and the approved skills are across the country. And it's a really important thing to do to get our knowledge base uh, to kind of control it a little bit that we're handling what's going on out there, that people are getting the same information. I agree. You mentioned clinical supervision, and that to me 
from a historical perspective, because I have been in the network for a while, was um, a topic that every state was doing clinical, you know, supervision training, of course, but they were all doing it differently. And the ATTC was able to standardize that and to offer that to the states, again, to help with, you know, supporting the resource allocation, really, and to develop a clinically sound, evidence-based clinical supervision course that many states could use it, and then build off of that um, to, to your regional and state-specific needs. I actually just did a just a brief three-hour overview of competency-based clinical supervision based on those documents um, for a national provider, uh, for newer supervisors who get stuck with that question of, what do I do now? How do I handle a silence? What do I say? Uh, and I think it's eye-opening. It was for me because when I was a clinical supervisor before I came to the the uh, CCB, I was just a guy that had a difficult people on my on the caseload. So, oh well, he can do that. He can manage difficult caseload. Let's make him the supervisor. I had no skill, no clue, things. Um, and then I met David Powell, and that changed everything. <laughs> Believe me, that changed everything. Um, One of the things I find important about information sharing is something that we all we we all kind of struggle to do is is a, really a succinct way to distribute it. Um, can you talk about the ATTC Messenger newsletter and the things they may find in it and some of the links? Um, so the uh, again the newsletter is it's a you know digital product. Um, it is topical, so we'll take a. I don't want to call it a hot topic, but it's typically a pop popular or timely topic and distill that information into about an 800 to 1,000 word overview article. In addition to that, there are monthly highlights of maybe it is a National Awareness Month. And so we'll highlight different national organizations. Um, you know, this is Pride Month. And so uh, June. So in our June issue, we're highlighting, you know, activities around pride that our stakeholders are doing and, and across the regional centers as well. So you'll get is an easy snapshot of a topic that is timely, that is distilled in information that is, um, you know, in distillable bites or chunks. You'll also get an overview of monthly highlights of national, but also regional activities and links to the other federal training centers as well, of course, the network regional centers. So you're basically introduced in one newsletter to a, a, a host of technical assistance centers that are sublinked within the messenger. And I, I'll share those links with your uh, podcast listeners uh, for you to post maybe in the podcast notes. I'll make sure that I do that, thank you. Um, you briefly mentioned this earlier, but what are some of the things that the network did in response to COVID? Well, I'll take it first on hands to Sarah for a regional perspective, but just nationally, I mentioned the telehealth series. That was really critical. I think that first month that we now all know that uh, it really is March 2020 when we were going into national lockdown. Um, it was, you know, such a difficult time for everyone. Everyone was concerned about their patient. How are we going to continue care, quality care? And all of a sudden policies that were Long-standing barriers to delivery of care through telehealth were brought down. And so the whole field had to pivot. And um, under the leadership of our, our team, we worked with other national collaborators like the Center of Excellence for Protective Health Information, the other training centers that SAMHSA and HRSA 
fund on um, telehealth um, to bring information to the field, but we used a flipped classroom model in which the field was asking their questions first, and then we were providing some of the like content, direct topical content, because we knew there was anxiety on everybody's level, right? How do we do this right away? How do we stand up these services? So I'll stop there. I think that was, you know, a flagship for sure for us. Absolutely, Sarah. Yeah, and I will actually speak as a regional director, but who was involved in a national initiative that one of the things that I think was really critical during COVID was that you were seeing three TTC networks, because we have the Addiction Technology Transfer Center Network, which we are representing today, the Prevention Technology Transfer Center Network, and the Mental Health Technology Transfer Center Network, you were seeing people shift from the provision of face-to-face -face training and technical assistance to virtual training and technical assistance in real time. And so as someone that does research myself, we talk a lot about evidence-based practice, and there was an unbelievable opportunity to document and track practice-based evidence happening during COVID. We were really seeing what are these expert training and TA centers actually doing to respond to the COVID pandemic and to, to really embrace best practices in virtual learning. So we formed a cross TTC work group. Polly and I are both very active. I'm the co-chair of the work group that was called the Cross Technology Transfer Center work group on virtual learning. And we really made a concerted effort to document the practice-based evidence that was emerging across the network. And we did that in a few ways. The first thing we did was we did a leadership survey where we surveyed all 39 directors of TTCs across all three networks to ask them, what are your benefits of going to virtual training and technical assistance? What are your challenges? We asked a lot of open-ended questions of ways that they were innovating. And we asked very specific questions about the types of training in terms of the level of intensity as well. So we wanted to see what innovations are emerging in kind of brief webinars, what kind of innovations are emerging in the more intensive technical assistance that we often provide, the true implementation, ongoing support that we give. Um, and we made a really concerted effort to document that. Um, that's something I could talk about for hours. We learned so much really wonderful stuff that is now a publication in the Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment. We then followed that up by taking a close look at the first 393 training events offered during COVID and we manually coded them. So we had two independent coders go through each one to see what are the themes that people are requesting in these early days of COVID. And we saw that the field was really hungry uh, for networking a lot of times. So people were requesting just the opportunity to come together to speak to other providers. We also, there was a lot of requests for provider self-care and also just how they could meet the needs of their um, consumer base. Other themes that were popular were things like, how do I shift to telehealth? How do I restructure my organizational policies? And then uh, we saw a real surge in interest in health equity following the murder of George Floyd. So that's something that has always been of, of interest and a major focus of the TTCs, but we did see um, that our largest attended events were shortly after that in a pivotal event in American history. And so um, we've continued to document what we're doing. We also have some colleagues that did some really cool geospatial mapping and they looked at what was the reach of our training pre-COVID and what has it been post-COVID since we shifted fully virtually. And we saw an uptake in urban, suburban and rural areas um, as more and more trainings have been coming online. The idea that you're looking at kind of pre and post almost getting outcomes warms my heart because we don't see enough outcomes in this field. We see a lot of marketing, but not a lot of outcomes in things. And so it makes my heart warm to, to hear that. Um, 
Yeah, and, and I think, and, it, like you're saying, it was a golden opportunity absolutely. to look at things in a different way from a, through a different lens and get information that's valuable for information and sharing. And the idea of, of networking has kind of changed because through the virtual world, um, some better, some worse. But it's, it's incredibly important. I know that when I get invited to a conference, I may have a friend who's speaking or something. I look at who's going to be there. And who do I want to get to know? Oftentimes that may be the deciding thing that, okay, I'll, I'll spend my money to go to this conference because I really want to get a chance to talk to this person. Um, so networking is really important. And it, it's nice for people to be able to do that. And in real time, talk about what they're doing in their own areas, their own uh, clinics or sort of thing like that. So that, it's really exciting to me. Um, as you said, Sarah, our regional office here in New England, and for most of our listeners who are in New England, um, is is here in Providence, I mean, uh, in New England and Providence and Brown. And what are some of the unique projects that you're undertaking there? I get emails from Ray all the time about <laughs> things that are going on. Yes, Ray's our unbelievably <laughs> talented um, project and application coordinator in a former life before Healthy Knowledge was created, he oversaw our own regional um, e-learning system. And I'm so thrilled that now that is nationally coordinated through Healthy Knowledge. So everything Holly said about that platform, I just want to echo that it's a really wonderful service. We were interviewed by Hanair and, and uh, by Ray because we had a, a, a distance learning platform, which is really outdated at the time. And they gave us some good ideas on how to upgrade. So it was a nice information sharing for us. Oh, that's wonderful. So one of the things I would say that I think makes our region unique is that we really focus a lot on what we would call intensive technical assistance. So across the ATTC network, we provide technical assistance across a continuum. And you can think of it, we actually have a beautiful pyramid that perhaps we can share as part of the podcast resources that are distributed. But basically we think about technical assistance as ranging from basic to targeted to intensive with um, basic being things like webinars, things like podcasts, things that can reach a very large homogeneous group, but that really don't require a big time commitment from the person receiving it or the person preparing it. Uh, targeted technical assistance is more customized in nature. It's something requested that usually there's kind of a customized relationship, uh, ongoing training, learning communities, a series of training events would be examples in that area. And then intensive technical assistance is really ongoing facilitation and support to help someone to integrate a new practice or approach into their usual care. And we in New England really value and spend a lot of time in that space. Looking at the national data, about 5% of all services by all three TTC networks are in intensive TA. In New England, that is 35%. Um, we've done that an analysis uh, regionally. And we have an approach called the Science to Service Laboratory that we use to guide that, which combines upfront training, provision of didactics with some form of usually performance feedback, and then some sort of ongoing facilitation and coaching. So I would say that's the biggest thing that I'm most proud of. That's something good that I, um, for our people, because accessing science to service activities are not as easy for individuals who aren't well aware of it because, you know, they're, they're not going to get information so much or be able to participate in the, in the night of blending initiatives and things because they're, they're based at certain locations. But this is a chance to kind of put that research into practice, let other individuals around take advantage of that. And I think that that's exciting for our field. Absolutely. And then I would say with 
with that backdrop, knowing that we like to do a lot of intensive TA, I would say things that we have done for a long time in New England that we consider strengths. We do a lot of training and motivational interviewing. Uh, we have Stephen Andrews, who's a national, if not international expert in MI in our region. And he does quite a lot of intensive TA um, with often with departments of corrections. So which I would say another related area of strength is that we do a lot of work with correctional departments throughout the New England region. Um, and then I would say this past grant cycle, we have really leaned into contingency management and we have been doing a major intensive technical assistance initiative with opioid treatment programs throughout New England, helping them to really integrate contingency management as a highly effective and completely underutilized <laughs> practice that um, really needs to be promoted. I think folks in New England have had interactions with the ATTC, but didn't know it at things like the uh, New England Institute of the, the summer school. Well, now it's, it's yes. pretty consistently at Worcester state when they're filling out the forms at the end, they don't realize that that's data that the, uh, that you're collecting um, about I the think training. If you've done in the last three years, you know, because we now kick it off. We do the welcome. It's, it's pretty, we are much more visible than we were in prior grant cycles um, because we've tried to be more intentional about our branding. Something that's a focus for me and, and I see as being important, certainly as I get older uh, and, and get to the, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm well over halfway into my career. I'm on the downside uh, of this, but the faces of the leaders are always changing. People that were leaders when I came into the field, and even when I came to the, to the CCB 12 years ago, have significantly changed. You know, I, don't, I can't pick up the phone and call David Mineta at ONDCP. I've got to call him in California at his, at his other job, but you know, all of these folks that, that I've got to know. Um, so the change in responsibilities, people are retiring. Sadly, many you know, people will pass, um, like David Powell, and uh, recently, uh, Kathy Carroll at Yale, another one of people that, that I just trusted in, in, implicitly with. Um, can we talk about the need to develop leaders since that's something that's being done through the end, uh, New England ATTC? Um, sure, because, you know, my, my colleagues, Tom Coderre <laughs> and Tom Hill, can't do it all and have every position, although they have been pretty close over the years. Um, can we talk about the need to develop in the leadership program at the New England ATTC? Absolutely. And I'm always up for a shout out for Tom Coderre. We're so lucky to have him as our regional administrator um, now for SAMHSA, but we've in our ATTC been working with him, it seems like forever in, in many of his various leadership roles. And it's been great to see him acting as the acting assistant secretary as well the past year. He's, um, we're very lucky to have him in New England. Also very lucky to have the incoming secretary, um, also from the state of Connecticut, Miriam um, Delphin Rittman is, um, and I just think it's a real testament to the level of innovation you see in New England that so many of these national leaders come from here. Um, He's a perfect aside, choice. Yeah, um, that aside, um, <laughs> to your question about why do we need to develop leaders, I'll start with the regional perspective and then I'm sure Holly might have um, some to add. We absolutely prioritize this in New England. We have been for the last 15 to 20 years. We, we have an aging workforce. We also have a workforce that tends to be stretched really thin. And so retention and turnover are big challenges within the workforce perpetually. And so we need to develop leaders to help retain staff. I will say in New England, we also struggle with a workforce that is not as diverse as the patients that it serves. And so developing leaders that can cultivate 
a culturally diverse and inclusive workforce is, I think, of paramount importance. And so we, I would say about 10 to 15 years ago, we first got into the leadership space with um, Sue Storty, who was the ATTC director at the time. She was a nurse and she partnered with Peter Smith, who um, has trained with a master's in business administration, and they developed a leadership program and then there was a period where all of the ATTCs were using a singular national program. And so we kind of fell out of offering our regional one. And then since 2017, this last grant cycle, we've really revitalized our leadership curriculum again in, in a regional way. And so we, I think, are on our fifth or sixth cohort of our leadership initiative. It was a hybrid program pre-COVID where there were some intensive residential portions followed by multiple Zoom ongoing learning sessions. Through COVID, we went fully virtual and we are now envisioning this fall some return to some level of hybrid functioning again so that people can meet for some face-to-face. -face. Um, but we really view it as something that is, is just absolutely critical for the functioning of the workforce. And it's a really wonderful program um, with a lot of experiential learning, a lot of self-assessment, understanding yourself, your own personality as a leader, and understanding how that affects the way that you engage, and just learning really basic leadership skills that can help people for the next stage in their career. Holly, anything you'd add? Yes, thank you. You know, Sarah mentioned this um, time period of our funding cycles. So our funding cycles have typically been five-year funding cycles. And we do understand there are different priorities and at different times funding is targeted in different areas. So for a very long period, there was specific funding to that national leadership curriculum that Sarah mentioned. This last grant cycle, it wasn't such, but the beauty of the network is that what Sarah described could happen that this could continue with the regional center and their priorities. And I can attest that all the regional centers have leadership programs. Um, and I'll put in the chat that uh, in specific are two population centers, the National American Indian and Alaska Native and the, Alaska, uh, the National Hispanic and Latino. They have very robust leadership training programs too that are open to all the regions because of course those populations aren't members of all of our communities. So I will highlight that in, in, as a link in the chat. But I will say that um, even with this shift in priority, you know, so we don't have that national curriculum, we still have the emphasis on leadership development and that could, you know, that creates that um, sustainability. Although we are still looking at an aging workforce, uh, we're, st we're not, you know, giving up we are continually to develop that. And so I just wanted to hallmark that that legacy, even though that funding priority was not outlined in particular in this funding cycle, it's we're still able to maintain that throughout the network because of its importance. Um, and also, you know, I'll just highlight from a HRSA perspective, there is a loan forgiveness program now for addictions professionals. And we should put that in the links too, because that was, um, you know, a lot of many years of advocacy for that to happen and to come to fruition, I feel like in the last maybe month or so, it maybe has not gotten a lot of attention, maybe just because we're in that COVID environment that we have, you know, we've been in for so 15 months now, and now our energies are all like, how do we come out of COVID and go back to work? But I think it was kind of like not as championed, but it is actually there. There is a loan forgiveness program that the Health um, Resources and Services Administration is funding for addiction professionals, which when I started in this field, that was 
you know, it was not possible. So uh, those are investments in our future, future leaders, and I hope we can only grow that more. You know, I, for me, it was so important about leadership that I, three years ago, went back and got a master's in nonprofit leadership, um, partly for my own, but because to, to take some of the things that were taught and pass them on, because a lot of it come from that, not, not a business perspective, not the accounting pieces and all that, but it has a very important place in leadership. Leadership skills can, can transfer. Um, and, and I think that we don't talk about or haven't talked about some of the key things that leadership leaders should develop because they don't necessarily fall within the traditional discussions of our field. So that's why the, the, the efforts are so important uh, to get that out there. And when you mentioned Tom, uh, Tom Godair, every time Tom was doing a presentation, if I was there, he'd roll his eyes because he knows I'd get stuck in the minutia of what he said and had to ask him. And he would be like, you know, can you not do that today? I said, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. But then I would lose it. <laughs> um, here at the CCB, we do something that I saw is also done here by the ATTC in New England, and it's, it's a reading group. And from my perspective, we chose, we had a couple of uh, groups and we chose some pretty controversial stuff right off the bat because we wanted to challenge people, not to get them to believe anything, but to be able to talk about it rationally. So we we, um, first started with Drug Use for Grownups by Dr. Carl Hart and having presented and spent an evening uh, at a couple of conferences with Carl, I found him fascinating and also that he likes to fire people up. He gets a little grin when he when he can do that. Um, but I thought the book, there was a lot of, of good stuff to talk about in there. And then we uh, jumped into The Sober Truth by Dr. Lance Stodes, which um, also is difficult for some of the folks in our, our reading group to go through. Um, and we're going to jump into The Unbroken Brain by Maya Salovitz to talk about her perspectives as substance use disorders, as learning disorders. And just for the discussion, it really gives open-minded people an opportunity to challenge their beliefs um, and maybe change them, maybe strengthen them, depending on their perspective, and do this from a non-emotional perspective. I think that's really, really important that they can do that. And I noticed that, that Sarah, that you you and the, the ATTC partnered with other organizations on a reading group as well. Can you share more about that? Sure. And first, I should say, I want to invite myself to the CCB reading group because your list is sounds amazing. And I love the authors that you've chosen. They're some of my favorites in the field. And it just seems like a fantastic model. So um, I reached out to Carl <laughs> and I tried to get him to join one. And he's like, really? You know, all, he's doing the TV thing. and He's, he's pretty famous. He's pretty crashed everywhere. Yeah. And he's I'm like, okay, you're a big star now. All right. Okay, I get it. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, I think that's such a wonderful model you've shared. So our group, I'm so thrilled you asked because it's pretty new for us. We developed a journal reading group about four or five months ago. It is led by Brendan Jacka, who's a harm reduction expert. He's a new junior faculty member at the Brown School of Public Health in the Department of Epidemiology. And he partnered with um, John Saska, who at the time they partnered was based at Rye Cares, which is a recovery support services organization. And they came together and they really had this vision that it would be helpful to bridge the gap between academics and those that are actually in the community doing frontline service and to really come together and talk about the latest research 
in a way that brings those voices together so that the researchers are hearing what about the research is most important to those in the community and that those in the community can learn from the researchers how to interpret research articles. So it is called a harm reduction and recovery support services reading group. And once a month, we pick a specific journal topic and everyone is welcome. We get a lot of people at the reading group with lived experience. We get people that are actually um, employed out in the field, uh, providing harm reduction or recovery support services. And all of our articles are specifically about the provision of harm reduction. We've done quite a few different topics. One of our most lively was about stigma and which types of words, according to research and surveys were viewed as most stigmatizing. So it was great to get people's lived experience about the the way they wanted to claim certain words or be referred to. Um, And a new thing that we are just starting is doing basically a one page strategic, um, strategic summary of those that will be a a product that we will then share to the region so that people can get a brief overview of what was the takeaway messages from the article and what were the takeaway messages from that discussion. I want to jump in on that one because I love talking about harm reduction and I think it's an important pe- thing for people to talk about because the more we discuss it, the Absolutely. more we open our minds, the more we realize how incredibly life-saving and how evidence-based it, it, it truly is. And I, and I don't want that lost on people who may not have access to that, who may have just one opinion on harm reduction without the knowledge and by gaining that knowledge can can challenge those opinions. So we'll make a trade. I'll, I'll make that trade. Please, yes. And anyone listening <laughs> is welcome. These are open to the public. Great. Thank you. Um, before we finish up, how can people contact um, the network for, uh, for information on offerings and services. Um, and I'll make sure that I post this uh, when the podcast goes up. Holly, do you want to start with a, a couple of, of contact, some contact information that'd be important? Yeah, for sure. The best way to contact us is through the website, attcnetwork.org. That is the easiest way. It connects you to the National Center, the Network Coordinating Office, and our email. But all of the regional centers have their contact information posted. Um, and so we know you have listen, listeners across the country that would want to reach out. If you hadn't heard about the ATTCs before today's podcast, there's no excuse for you not to know and reach out. Uh, at least look at the website. So that is the number one portal for us to the world. That is attcnetwork.org. And that has connections to all of the regions, right? So people can even, yep. regardless of where they're listening, can learn about what's happening in the other regions. And Exactly. And so if you just add a slash at the end to the address she gave you, attcnetwork.org slash New England, you'll come to our regional pages, which will give you a sense of some of the most popular training and technical assistance that we offer. We have ongoing news events. You can see our products and resources. And there's a Meet Our Team page and really all doors are open. You can email any member of our team. We also have a generic New England ATTC at brown.edu email that people can use to initiate requests. And I can certainly, you know, uh, vouch for how responsive everybody is uh, at both and uh, and both the national coordinating office and in So I'm thankful that people can are able to do that. Um, before we finish, anything you'd like to add for our listeners? I think I just really want to thank your listeners for joining us today and to let us know, to let your listeners know that we are always just a phone call or an email away. There is a lot, I think, as you've done a really nice job highlighting, Jeff, of 
self-paced asynchronous resources. So if you don't have the time to join us for specific scheduled training, there are lots of training materials that are right at your fingertips that you can access at any time. But if you would like something more customized for your organization or setting, you can always just email us or call us to have a conversation. We lost you there for a second, Holly, but you're back. Um, I'm so, so sorry. What, let's, sorry. Before you finish, is there anything that you'd like to add um, about the, kind of the national efforts before we close our show? Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would just add, please visit our website. I think you'll be surprised by how dynamic the ATTC network is. Literally, there's hundreds of new events and products every month that you could take advantage of that are free for you and your staff. Um, or organization. So reach out. I think you'll be converted and, and become one of the ATTC family. Thank you both. I'm, I'm so proud that you, you chose to join us. And uh, I look forward to working with you both again uh, in the future. Thanks for having us. Thank That's you. going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank both Dr. Holly Hagel and Dr. Sarah Becker for joining us and I hope this discussion helps you want to take advantage of all the great things that are being done uh, by the ATTC network. We extend our gratitude again to Mountainside Treatment Center for their generous support and we here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who's listening. Please don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. As I say every week, I listen on Amazon because it's easy for me. But when I was on vacation last week, I was listening to it on the television on iTunes which I was kind of weird hearing my own voice coming through the TV, but it was cool. We'll catch you next time, everybody. 